0: Herbert, an editor and writer who coined the phrase, practice random acts of kindness and senseless acts of beauty, also observed that libraries will get you through times of no money better than money will get you through times of no libraries. On Capitol Hill this week, Congress heard from librarians and found some money for them. Welcome to Copyright Clearances Podcast Series. I'm Christopher Keneally for Beyond the Book. National Library Legislative Day attracts over 500 librarians and library advocates to the nation's capital each spring. The occasion is an opportunity not only to highlight a sometimes overlooked national treasure, but also to get the attention of Congress, which controls millions in federal spending that flows to libraries of all kinds. Andrew Albanese, Publishers Weekly Senior Writer, was there, and he joins me now from New York. Welcome. Back to Beyond the Book, Andrew.
1: Hey there, Chris. Well, in a minute, we
0: want to hear about National Library Legislative Day, but uh, there is plenty of other news coming out of Washington this week, and some of it good. As a budget deal spared the National Endowment for the Arts and a variety of federal library funding spending. So, tell us about that.
1: That's right. Some good news from Capitol Hill. Actually, as legislators uh, struck a budget deal this week, that's going to keep the government open and will actually up slightly up the budgets for the arts. Uh, the deal comes after, of course, Donald Trump's initial skinny budget proposed, eliminating the National Endowment for the Arts and the Humanities, of course, and the Institute of Museum and Library Services, along with virtually all federal support for libraries. But the omnibus passed this week actually bumps up the NEA and NEH budgets by about $2 million. Uh, and the library community actually got about $1 million over its uh, FY16 level, so good news to say the least. However, let's be clear. This is last year's work that we're just finishing up now, and this budget deal merely funds the government through the end of the 2017 fiscal year, which ends on September 30th. And the budget battle for next year is already underway, and it is not yet known whether Trump will renew his calls to eliminate the arts and library funding. Uh, so while we can take a moment here to breathe a sigh of relief for a moment, at least until September, it's right back to the battle because the battle is far from over. Well,
0: indeed, and the battle... continued in Washington because you have covered the nation's libraries for some time. But this week you joined librarians there for National Library Legislative Day for the very first time. And what was that like?
1: Yeah, my my very first trip after all these years to National Library Legislative Day, which uh, the ALA Washington office hosts every year. Uh, They bring librarians from around the country to Washington for two days of meetings on Capitol Hill, both with uh, lawmakers from their states and their delegations and also with each other. Uh it's it's like half pep rally and part primer on the issues and also sort of like this master class of, you know, the art of talking to politicians. And over the course of 2 days, library delegates did do just that. They they went to Capitol Hill and to the Senate and they met with their legislators and they let them know uh, that it's important to fund libraries and about a couple of other issues that are on the table for libraries.
0: Right, Andrew. And it's not just a general appeal for the good of libraries. There were particular bills and particular uh, organizations, federal organizations, that the librarians were sort of targeting. Tell us about that.
1: Yeah, well, first and foremost, it's about the money, right? It always comes down to the money. And while librarians did get some good news to start the week regarding the budget for 2017, uh, the battle is really already underway for 2018. And the message that librarians were specifically instructed to bring to the Hill was pretty clear, save the Institute and Museum of Library Services, fully fund libraries and reauthorize the law that makes all library funding possible at the federal level, which is the Museum and Library Services Act. Uh, and ALA officials were pretty blunt. It's going to be a tough fight. No one really knows what the future holds with President Donald Trump. So it's vital that librarians and their supporters continue to raise their voices. Uh, now, beyond the money, of course, there are a number of other issues librarians were talking to legislators about. Uh, and chief among them included internet privacy, uh, net neutrality, and of course, you know, an issue we've spoken a lot about here, copyright, and specifically the library community's opposition to a recently passed bill in the House that would make the red Register of copyrights, a presidential appointee. Uh, there's much, much more, of course, and you can read all about it actually in Monday's issue, where I'll have a write-up of my time in Washington. Uh, and one final note, this is ALA Washington office director Emily Shekatov's last go-round at National Library uh, Legislative Day. She's retiring after more than 17 years at the helm of the Washington office, and she really has made a big difference for libraries. She was brought on with a mandate of upping the library's game on the hill. She has certainly done that. Big shoes to fill for the next person to come into that job. So just a quick note of congratulations and best wishes to Emily Shekatov on her retirement.
0: In a moment, Andrew Albanese and I will return with news from the Bayou State, where a public university veterinary school is caught in a contractual dispute with a big cat publisher. You're listening to Beyond the Book. I'm Christopher Keneally. Publishers Weekly Radio has the very best in book talk directly from New York City, the heart of the book publishing world.
1: I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly.
0: And I'm Rose Fox. I'm a Senior Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly.
1: Join us every Friday for a full hour of exciting author interviews, best-selling books, and expert reports on the nuts and bolts of publishing.
0: Every week, we make sure that you have the inside story of your favorite story. Take a listen at publishersweekly.com slash PWRadio. I'm Christopher Keneally for CCC's Beyond the Book, and we are back with Andrew Albanese, Publishers Weekly senior writer, covering the week's news in publishing. Libraries dominated the PW headlines this week, Andrew. You were telling us earlier about National Library Legislative Day in Washington. Also this week, way down on the bayou, an interesting dispute came to light between the Louisiana State University Libraries and Elsevier over access to the company's digital journals. Tell us about that.
1: Yeah, that's right. You know, officials at, at Louisiana State University say that Elsevier is wrongly blocking students in its veterinary school from accessing the main library's Elsevier digital subscriptions. And perhaps a more eye opening twist to this story, they say the Dutch publisher is refusing to accept service of a lawsuit that seeks to restore access. Now, news of the suit was delivered Tuesday uh, via a pretty detailed release from Krista Cox of the Association of Research Libraries, who had just wrapped up their meeting in Philadelphia. Uh, as ARL tells, tells. tells the story, LSU library officials realized that the school really did not need a separate contract for its veterinary school to access most Elsevier journals, and that the 600 or so users associated with the veterinary school were, in fact, contractually included in and could access most Elsevier journals through the main library subscription, which, according to the contract, could service up to about 35,000 users. So, upon expiration of the veterinary school separate contract, LSU last year asked Elsevier to simply add 19 additional journal titles that were requested by the veterinary school to the main library subscription and to send them a bill. Now, Elsevier initially seemed to agree to this, but then LSU says the publisher reversed course, and they say Elsevier is now blocking a range of campus IP addresses used by the vet school from accessing those Elsevier journals. And after a request by LSU to restore access were not responded to, LSU finally filed a breach of contract suit at the end of February in Louisiana State Court, claiming that the IP addresses that were being blocked were explicitly covered in the library's main else of your contract. And if you look at the contract, which is part of the lawsuit, you can see that seems they are. Now Elsevier of course sees things differently. A spokesperson told me that LSU was seeking to add a separately contracted school along with its associated users into an existing contract without having to pay for it and that the current LSU central campus contract doesn't include the vet school nor was any merger ever negotiated. So Elsevier is trying to negotiate a new deal. LSU says that all it needs is access to 19 titles to be added to its current deal. So therein is the start of it's turning out to be a fascinating conflict.
0: Well, indeed, quite a spat. And, and so we have a contract dispute or a tough negotiation, not uncommon with libraries and publishers in the digital journal realm. So what is this claim that Elsevier is not accepting service all about?
1: Yeah, well, you said it technically right. Now, sources have told me that Elsevier has, for all intents and purposes, refused service of the suit, and that's what I reported. Uh, The company, Elsevier, has gently wished to correct me to say that they haven't refused service, they just haven't accepted service. And while I understand there is surely some legal significance in the difference, in practical terms, I just don't see it. So, you know, what I'm told is that LSU attempted to serve Elsevier through Louisiana's long-arm statue and at its headquarters here in New York. And, of course, Elsevier has an army of lawyers in the U.S., and they could easily accept service if they wanted to. Uh, But the service has not been accepted, and LSU is now seeking to effect service at Elsevier headquarters in Amsterdam through the Hague Service Convention, which, observers say, could take some time. Is an interesting development in this case. So, however you want to characterize it, the suit has not been accepted by Elsevier. And the real question is, why? And the answer, of course, is that Elsevier sees this contract dispute as a negotiation And they surely want more time to try to pressure and hammer out a new deal with LSU. And they have some leverage by blocking some IP addresses here and refusing to license the additional 19 titles to the main library that the vet school wants. Indeed, two weeks ago, an Elsevier rep did not acknowledge the suit explicitly, but proposed a new deal to LSU Library Director Stanley Wilder that would add titles and new fees to the tune of about $200,000 to LSU's existing deal, which is said to be about $1.5 million already. Uh, But LSU, they want relief now. That's why they sued. They have students and faculty who are being affected. And to them, the contract is crystal clear. Their current contract includes students at the vet school. And the quicker this gets to a judge, the quicker they believe they're going to see relief.
0: All right, Andrew. So I'll ask you the question that listeners are probably asking themselves. And how, how does this thing end? And if it's really just a contract dispute, why is it so important, do you think?
1: Well, I think it ends with a deal, most likely. You know, I've looked at the contract myself, and it is hard for me to see Elsevier's point in any way. Just because there was a previously separate contract for the vet school, which has been fulfilled, by the way, uh, why the library can't say, "Well, we don't need that deal. We just need some titles." You know, maybe I'm missing something in the definitions. But vet school students at LSU are LSU students; they are on the main campus. Elsevier, of course, is free to negotiate a price for adding those extra 19 journals, and in fact, they. Did did. They quoted $35,000 to the LSU library uh, added to the existing contract. But then when they realized that the vet school deal was actually going away, they started actually realizing that they were leaving money on the table and they put the brakes on that deal and they started asking for more and insisting on a separate contract for the vet school. But what makes this interesting is that, well, for one, LSU is a public institution and they're just trying to make the best use of tax dollars. As uh, ARL's Krista Cox pointed out, all LSU is trying to do in the present case is ensure that it is not unnecessarily duplicating subscriptions for its campus and using state resources in a responsible manner. But the final thought here I have is that it really all boils down to the contract, right? either LSU's reading is right or Elsevier's reading is right. Now, LSU filed suit, so clearly they believe their reading of the contract is correct. Elsevier, on the other hand, is delaying. And that tells me that what they really want is more time to exercise a little leverage and try to get a better deal, the best deal that they can, which is not only fraught because we're dealing with a public school, and of course it puts a light again on Elsevier's massive size and power, uh, market power of academic research, but they're also using a tactic Blocking IP addresses that's reserved for pirates. This is what you do when somebody is, you know, pirating your content. You block their IP addresses. But this is one of their best customers. This is a major customer of theirs. So it's not really a good look, I would think, for Elsevier here. But back to the question if you ask me how this ends, I think it ends with a new contract and both sides issuing a press release saying absolutely how happy they are.
0: All right. Well, let me just say how happy I am to speak every Friday with Andrew Albanese of Publishers Weekly. Thanks for being on the show, Andrew.
1: My pleasure, as always.
0: The world changed from having the determinism of a clock to having the contingency of a pinball machine. So wrote the physicist and popular science writer Heinz Pagels in The Cosmic Code, describing the shift from Newtonian laws to Einstein's theories a century ago. Last month in Washington, at the annual spring conference of the STM Association, publishers of scientific, technical, and medical journals and books heard the future of their world likened to a pinball machine. Deborah Sweet, editor and publishing director at Cell Press, said the image works for her and describes her working day aptly. What I liked about it is that it has this element of chaos in it. It's got this, there's a lot of stuff here, and it's sort of all baffing around, and we, don't, we sort of get a little confused about where to go, and that's one of the things that I find sort of exciting and daunting at the same time here, that there are a lot of choices, there are a lot of ideas, there are a lot of options, there's a lot of things we could do, and they're represented on here. And the tough part, actually, the playing the game, is trying to decide which of those we should be focusing on, which to use, because there's, there's more than we can reasonably do, I think. The Pinball Wizards of STM Publishing, next on Beyond the Book. Beyond the Book is produced by Copyright Clearance Center, a global leader in content management, discovery, and document delivery solutions. Through its relationships with those who use and create content, CCC and its subsidiaries RightsDirect Direct and IXIS drive market-based solutions that accelerate knowledge, power publishing, and advance copyright. Beyond the Book co-producer and recording engineer is Jeremy Brisky of Burst Marketing. I'm Christopher Keneally. Join us again soon on Beyond the Book you <music>